Hey everybody, um, I'm back with some quick notes on Andrew Jackson and on what comes next, okay, for our class. So, Jackson, um, his time in office is known as the Jacksonian era, and he's blamed for a lot of things and criticized for a lot of things, uh, but he's also praised for a lot of things. And there's some important things to understand about Andrew Jackson, and I've tried to find a video for you. But I haven't found anything that really covers it as well as I want it covered, okay? So to understand Jackson, you have to understand his background. And that's the way it works with any figure in history. In the case of Jackson, he is um, a child during the American Revolution. And so he sees the British being quite brutal. He lost a lot of family members. He himself was slashed in the face with a saber by a British Army officer. He was just a boy. And Jackson is an unforgiving personality type. And so he either loves you or he hates you. And if he hates you, he seriously hates you. And in the case of the British, he had a hatred of them that lasted pretty much his entire lifetime. People will say Jackson is a racist because he will be a slave owner later on in life. He's he's very poor early in life, but later he will be rich. And they'll say, oh, well, he's racist. He hates, hates black people and he hates Indians. And this isn't really true because Jackson just hates people that he hates and, and loves people that he loves. And he just doesn't have a whole lot of gray area in between. So, yes, he will own slaves and, yes, he will fight with Indians, but he'll also have Indian allies, and he will also have slaves that uh, go free, uh, or um, black people that will uh, serve under him uh, at the Battle of New Orleans, for example. And he will always hate the British, who are just as white as he is. So, for Jackson, it's, it's really not the color of your skin. It's other things that associate with it. And I just want you to understand that. Um, he is a violent man. He has no problem shooting people that annoy him or infuriate him or insult his wife. Um, really no problem at all with that. But he is also a man of his times. He grew up on the frontier where you had to be ready to uh, be violent sometimes in order to stay alive. So, he's a very rough character, and I think his nickname, Old Hickory, gives us a clue to that. And when he gets elected president, there are a lot of people in Washington who are completely shocked. And one of the reasons is Jackson isn't elected by the rich, powerful, politically influential elites of America. He's elected by these wild people on the frontier, you know, men who are wandering around wearing buckskin outfits and uh, people that are just out there making moonshine, hanging out, shooting people um, sometimes. Uh, it's, it's It's a rough and ready place and he's a rough and ready man. But he brings this idea, he's a populist president, he brings this idea to Washington with him, um, truly a man of the people. Jackson said, he served two terms as president, and he said, you know, that if you are able to serve, you should serve. Serve your country. He's a very patriotic man. But then go home, get out of the way, and let somebody else serve. 
He did not believe in these uh, career politicians who served for 30, 40, 50 years or more in Washington. That was something he was opposed to. Jackson uh, did not believe in a national bank. And so when it came up for renewal during his term of office, he just let it expire because he thought that the bank um, would lead to bad problems for those people who had money in the bank. He, he didn't trust banks and things like that, which again is a reflection of his frontier life. Jackson is blamed for the Trail of Tears, and he does bear responsibility for that. He was the president when the Cherokee brought their lawsuits to the Supreme Court uh, to fight for their rights to their land. And the Supreme Court ruled in the favor of the Cherokee, and Jackson said, well, you know, the court's made its ruling, now let them enforce it. Because, of course, the court can't enforce it. The court doesn't have an army to enforce it. It's the job of the president to enforce the court's rulings. And Jackson had no intention of enforcing it. And we look on that and we go, oh, my God, what is wrong with him? He's being so mean to the Indians. But Jackson was a pragmatic man in many ways. And he looked at the situation like this. These settlers, who were Americans, were going to go in that area. Whether he wanted them to go or the governor of Georgia wanted them to go, it didn't matter. They were going. Unless somebody stopped them. And the only way to stop them uh, as president of the United States was for him to send the United States Army down there. So it would wind up being a situation where the United States Army was protecting the Indians from Americans. And so the U.S. Army might have to shoot U.S. citizens to protect these Indians, who Jackson did not consider to be U.S. citizens because they weren't. They were their own nation. Um, we're just occupying sort of the same land. Jackson felt that situation was untenable. He felt there was no way to guarantee the safety of the Indians. There was no way to guarantee that American settlers were not going to go into their territory because, of course, they were. They thought there was gold there. Uh, they were just going to go, and they were going to look at the land and see it was good land, and they were going to want the land. So Jackson felt that they just could not get along together, and that the best thing for everybody to do was to move one group or the other. And he couldn't move the Americans, but he could move the Indians. And so he was all for the Indian Removal Act, and he supported it, even though um, the Supreme Court certainly didn't. But Jackson is not, and this is what we need to remember, Jackson is not the president who actually conducted most of the removals. That will be his successor, Martin Van Buren, who never gets criticized for it. It's always Jackson, 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 Jackson. So I just wanted you to know that sometimes the way we write about history uh, doesn't necessarily reflect what actually happened unless you read some really detailed accounts. And so that's... Jackson. Okay? Now, moving away from Jackson, all right, uh, let's go look at what happens next. We've talked about um, the Trail of Tears, we've talked about the Monroe Doctrine, and, uh, or we've watched videos on it at least. I miss being able to sit around and talk to you guys. That's what I love most about teaching. So this has been painful. Um, but we had the Compromise of 
20, which is the Missouri Compromise. And now we're going to get some other documents, and it's going to be a problem. Let's understand the basics of the Compromise of 1820, or the Missouri Compromise, I should say. Uh, sets a nice definitive line, and everybody's happy. All the Southerners are going to be happy being able to spread uh, westward below the line, and the northern free states are going to spread above the line, and everybody's supposed to get along with everybody else. There was an understanding in 1820 that if these issues could not be resolved, or at least a compromise established, then we might wind up in a war, and we might wind up seeing our country split apart. And so the whole purpose of it is to stop that. Now, we've had some things going on, and we are about to get involved with Mexico, and that's what you will be seeing today. The original 13 colonies and then their easy spread westwards towards the mountains fills up the first third of our country geographically. Then we get the Louisiana Purchase and that takes up the middle of our country geographically. But the last part of our country will come in with um, fighting with the Mexicans. So first we'll see something about the Alamo because that's going to be even though it's not actually a United States battle, it's going to be something that will free Texas from Mexico. And then when we have the actual Mexican War, that will uh, take up the rest of the story. So that's what you'll be seeing today. And that'll take us up into the um, 1840s. Then we'll have a little California Gold Rush moment. And then we'll have the Compromise of 1850 which deals with all this new territory. And then we'll have the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which is going to basically make the Missouri Compromise of 1820 null and void and set up the conflict that will become the Civil War. Okay, But it's not all straightforward stuff. Um, lots of twists and turns. You would think, for example, the Kansas-Nebraska Act would have been brought forward by Southerners, and actually the leading figure is Stephen A. Douglas. And you'll understand why from these videos. Most of these videos today are going to be really short. Um, but, you know, pretty concise. And to help you understand what's going on. The other thing you need to know for this week is... Your projects and papers are due. Now, even though I put the drop boxes into week seven Wednesday's area, you have until midnight Friday, okay, uh, to do them. I would give you more time if I could, but I got to get them graded before week eight, all right, which is next week. So um, I'm going to stop this now, and you can. Uh, start watching the videos. Don't forget to take the mandatory attendance quiz. Some of you are waiting to the very last minute and missing it. And yes, there will be a graded quiz on Wednesday. Okay? Alright. And as always, let me know if you've got questions. Thank you.